Well, now's my chance, right? Chance to say what's been on my mind for so long. Chance for a mic drop moment. And second thought, I don't think a mic drop with an over-the-ear mic really has much of an impact. It might just swing from my belt and be really anticlimactic. But there are some things to say, aren't there? And we know where they're found. So we'll go back there again. In fact, we're going to go back to the very first text that I preached when I was here uh, January 11th, 2015. I still have the bulletin from that day. And uh, so we're going to go back to that text because it's just as reliable now as it was then. And I think it points us in a helpful direction for moving forward. As Paul calls his associate Timothy to work in the particular church that he has been put in for a season in order to protect the church from being distracted from what really matters. I was talking with Amy's dad, Al, who is in very many ways a predecessor for me in the work that I'm entering now. Um, Al is the guy who literally wrote the Pathways book. There is a book called Pathways, and he's the one who wrote it. He, he has developed the curriculum that's being used internationally to train pastors, and others have come along and become part of that team and to help to develop that curriculum as well. And it was interesting hearing him reflect on his time interacting with many different pastors around the world, with many different churches around the world, and, and reflecting on the fact that he had had the opportunity to see lots of different kinds of dysfunction in churches, lots of different kinds of trouble, uh, probably different kinds of dysfunction that would, to us, look very strange, and we might look at different problems in different churches around the world and think, how in the world could you even do that? How could that be at all normal to you? Uh, we don't have to deal with questions of polygamy among pastors here in the United States. And we might look at that and think, well, how, where do you even begin with these people? And one of the reasons we would be so bewildered is because the dysfunction that happens there is different from the dysfunction that we're used to and that happens here. And, and Al reflected on how even with all the dysfunction, he could see that actual good things were happening among the churches that he had been a part of and the churches that he had interacted with. And he said, you know, as, as, I, as I reflect on all of those things, I've come to the conclusion that in order for a church to be a real church, one thing is necessary. How might you expect the Bible training guy to fill in that blank? In order for a church to be a real church, what's really necessary? You know, each one of us might answer that question differently about grace. What, what does it take for grace to really be what grace is supposed to be? And how might the, the Bible training guy answer the question, what does it take for any church to be a real church? And his his way of filling in that blank, I thought, was incredibly helpful and true and not necessarily what you would expect. Said, I've come to the conclusion that what it takes for a church to be a real church is one thing, and it's Jesus himself. Jesus himself. 
Now, one of the reasons I think that is a uh, the right answer, the right way to fill in the blank, is that's exactly the way Jesus answered, answers the question himself. It's exactly the way Jesus frames his own relationship to the Bible. The Bible that we would say, we, we never leave it aside because we rely on Jesus himself. But when we look to the Bible, we look to the Bible to point us to Jesus himself. And that's exactly what Jesus tells people that he's talking to in John 5. He tells them this, John 5.39, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. That would be a strange thing for us to hear from the mouth of Jesus. Like, are you questioning the, the centrality, the importance of the Scriptures? Don't we find life in the Scriptures? And he would say, well, absolutely you do, but you're not finding the life that the Scriptures are pointing you to. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet, he says to the folks that he's talking to at the time, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I don't think you've refused to come to him. I think you are a real church. Because of Jesus himself. There is always a threat to every real church that exists in exactly the same place. The, the most significant threat to any church is the threat of Jesus himself being set aside. And that's Paul's concern as he writes to Timothy. And so we hear what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is the word of the Lord. What we're going to see as we see Paul reminding Timothy of his reason for being in Ephesus is that only Jesus is able to make people new. Only Jesus is actually able to change people from the inside out. We could even say only Jesus is able to make people good. And he is. And that's the reason that we protect the truth about Jesus. That's, that's the aim of Timothy's charge, his charge to protect true doctrine is that Jesus alone can make people new. The most significant threat to any church is the threat of Jesus himself being moved aside. Let me give you an example. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace 
from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Who's this story about? If I'm going to preach on verses 1 and 2, who am I going to preach about? Who did I just emphasize in the way that I read verses 1 and 2? Paul and Timothy are here, right? They're in the story. But who's the main character? And who did I subtly de-emphasize as I read verses 1 and 2? Who is it that makes Paul's relationship with Timothy matter at all? Who's the story about? When you look at the passage, who is repeated the most? Who really matters to Paul most as he writes to his beloved associate Timothy? We're, we're capable, I'm capable, of moving Jesus aside even by the way I read verses 1 and 2, where Jesus himself is the main character. When Paul calls Timothy, my true child in the faith, he means the faith that relies on Christ Jesus, our hope, verse 1, and our Lord, verse 2. We want to make sure, in every case, that we don't set Jesus aside. Paul doesn't do that, as he writes in verses 1 and 2. Jesus is the main character. And they get to be in the story. And it's in him that their relationship has real and lasting significance. So there is a human story here. And Timothy knows about it. And Paul reminds Timothy about it as it can be easy, no doubt, for Timothy to get lost in the weeds and have a hard time sometimes even answering the question, what am I doing here? Timothy's in Ephesus, and Paul wants to remind him of the story and of his reason for being there. He says in verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. So there evidently is a time when Paul and Timothy were traveling together uh, it appears that this happened after the close of the book of Acts. So Paul has gone on three missionary journeys in the book of Acts, and after that time, he evidently is released from prison and goes on a fourth missionary journey. He's traveling with Timothy. Part of the time, he's also traveling with Titus, and they go to Crete, and they plant churches there, and Paul leaves Timothy or leaves Titus in Crete. It's an island in the Mediterranean Sea to set in order what remains. And he and Timothy then travel northeast to what is now the west coast of Turkey and to the city of Ephesus. There's already a church in Ephesus. And when they arrive in Ephesus, they realize there are some problems. They realize there are some things that need to be said. And it turns out that the problem is not a surprise. It's something that Paul knew was going to happen eventually, though he hadn't been told when. A number of years earlier, in the book of Acts, Paul had been traveling to Jerusalem, and on the way to Jerusalem, he made a point to stop in a place where he could spend even a couple hours with the elders of the church in Ephesus. So he lands on the beach, and he calls the elders to himself, and they come to him, and he begins to talk to them, giving them a charge in view of the fact that he would... He knew that he would not see them again. It was a sad time for him and for the elders. And part of the sadness for Paul is that somehow God had given him insight into some of the dysfunction that was going to happen in Ephesus in the future. 
This is what he said to these elders on the beach. I know that after my departure, this is Acts 20, verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And now it appears that's beginning to happen in Ephesus. People are teaching a different doctrine. We'll ask the question, well, well what was that like in, in just a minute? But they're doing it, and they're doing it evidently to draw people not to Jesus, but to draw people away after themselves. And so Paul says, Timothy, this is why you're here. I, I left you in Ephesus in this hard place because the time has come when, when fierce wolves have shown up and they're working to draw people away after themselves. The threat of Jesus being set aside is being realized by people putting themselves in the place where only Jesus belongs. And I want you to work to protect the church. And so, I want you to stay there to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Well, what was that? What, what, what did that look like? What was that different doctrine that people were, were teaching? And one of the problems is it can be very subtle because it's not people showing up and saying that Jesus that you heard of, he's not real. He wasn't raised from the dead. Uh, maybe he wasn't even a real person. Maybe he was a fictional character. Almost always within the church, this different doctrine that sets Jesus aside and threatens the church is a Jesus and kind of doctrine. So, oh yeah, Jesus. Oh yeah, of course. Of course. Oh, and there's this, this other thing uh, that, that needs to be our, our focus. Jesus, yes, but there's this other thing that, that really needs to make us a real church. And that's what's beginning to happen. We'll ask the question briefly, and Paul will help us to answer it in, in different passages from 1 Timothy. What did that different doctrine actually look like? But the more important question is, different from what? Different from what? What was it that they were moving away from? I've mentioned it already, but we see it in, in, in Paul's letter to Timothy in a couple different places. Chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Paul says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. If there is a different doctrine, this is what it's different from. Jesus himself, fully God, fully man, crucified, raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he intercedes for us and is coming back again. Paul says, don't get different from that. He says, Timothy, you're going to have to protect the church from different doctrine. Chapter 6, verses 13 to 16. <clears throat> I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I charge you to do this in the presence of Jesus who made the good confession. Jesus who, we could say, spoke true doctrine. 
What was the good confession that Jesus made before Pontius Pilate? You can find it in Luke 23, verses 1 to 3. Jesus is before Pontius Pilate. And people are accusing him, and they say, we found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. And then Pilate puts the question to Jesus in Luke 23.3. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You have said so. What's a good confession that Jesus makes? It's the truth about Jesus himself, that he is the king, that he is the king of the Jews. We could expand from there as well, but the good confession that Paul charges Jesus in light of is the good confession about Jesus. Their teaching, the teaching that's threatening the church in Ephesus, is different from the central truth about Jesus. And it turns out that it is very much a Jesus and kind of different doctrine. When we look, and we'll look briefly at the examples that Paul gives of that different doctrine, we'll find it in two big categories. The first is rules in place of faith. The second is guesses in place of revealed truth. Rules in place of faith set Jesus to the side. Guesses in place of revealed truth set Jesus to the side. And when we really think about those two different categories, rules and guesses in place of faith and place of revealed truth, we can understand why they would really appeal, why they would sell, right? They appeal to longings in each one of us. Every single one of us wants to be good enough. Rules offer that. Every single one of us wants to be in the know. We want to be people who, who are known with, with having the right insight, who are, who are known for having the right information, known for not being ignorant. And every one of us has probably experienced at some time or another hearing somebody, somebody say, come on, get it together. What's wrong with you? Or hearing, how did you not know that? How could you not be aware of that? And there's shame that comes with not having it together or with not knowing it. And we long to be able to say, I'm good enough because of what I do or because of what I know. Because of my spiritual performance or because of my spiritual insight. So rules in place of faith sell. Guesses in place of revealed truth sell. Consider the rules in place of faith that push Jesus aside. We see Paul refer to this in just a, just a couple of verses after this morning's text when he refers to these teachers and what characterizes them. And he says they desire, verse 7, to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So here are people who are trying to teach the Bible, or maybe better said, who are trying to use the Bible. In particular, the part of the Bible that we now know as the Old Testament. That's what they had for a Bible at the time. And they, Paul says they want to be teachers of the law. And it may be, in a very simple way, that they were teaching people, you have to obey the law exactly as Moses gave it to us. Men need to be circumcised. You shouldn't eat pork. 
All those laws, you need to obey those laws. That's, that's, that's what you have to do. It could also be that they were getting a touch more creative than that. That they were coming along saying, we, we know the real intent behind the law that Moses gave, the law that we can read in the Bible. We know the real intent. We know what it was really about. And so we know the real law that you ought to be following. We know the spiritual purpose of these laws. So we've translated that into a new law for you, an upgraded law. Seems like something like that is happening in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That's severe. That's horrible. Have you, have you ever described somebody's teaching in that way? What's the actual content? might surprise us. Verse 3, it's a law. These are men who forbid marriage and re require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. It's a law. And these teachers, Paul says, didn't understand either the things they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. They didn't understand the nature of the law that's in the Bible. They didn't understand that the law was there to move us toward Jesus himself. That's what it's for. They didn't understand that the Bible is a story of God moving people toward himself, ultimately moving people toward himself in Jesus, and that the law fit into that part of the story. And so they didn't understand that, that, that this whole thing is moving us toward Jesus himself. They had their own version of the story. And the way they used the law fit into that version of the story. And their story was a dumb story. It's not one that resulted in rescue, not one that resulted in change. They didn't understand that the law was there to move us toward Jesus because only Jesus can produce what the law rightly requires. New people, new hearts, a heart of love. The law itself couldn't do it, still less their edited version of the law. And in every generation, we're prone to come up with edited versions of the law. Down through the centuries, it's happened over and over again. How do you make yourself the right kind of person? How do you make yourself the right kind of church? Be good enough by physically punishing yourself, making life really painful for yourself. Be good enough by buying indulgences. Be good enough by making sure that you completely avoid alcohol. Be good enough by schooling your kids using a certain method. Be good enough by being able to articulate and intelligently defend certain theological points. Be good enough by choosing a particular political affiliation. What are the rules? There are different ones in every culture, different ones to guard against in every church. And in each case, the real problem is not so much that the rules don't necessarily have any merit. Sometimes they do. 
There are wiser and less wise ways to do certain things. The problem is that the rules are put in the place that only Jesus belongs. The rules are put in the place that says, if you do this, then you'll be the right kind of person. Only Jesus can do that for us. And the rules threaten to set Jesus aside. And so, when we look at recommendations for living in a particular way, one of the most important questions for us to ask is a question that the Evangelical Free Church of America has very rightly asked from the very beginning. It was phrased in an old school way, in an old school time. The, the question was, where stands it written? You say that Christians should live this particular way, that Christians should avoid this or do that. Where stands it written? Or, in sort of modern day language, where did you read that? Where did you get that? How do you know that? Do you have that on the authority of the Bible? Or is it simply a guess? And is it maybe a bad guess? That's an important question because different doctrine takes the form of rules in the place of faith and it also takes the form of guesses in the place of revealed truth. Paul refers to that specifically in verse 4 of our passage this morning. I want you to charge certain people not to teach any different doctrine, verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations, guesses, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. He describes this in other terms in chapter 6, verse 20, when he calls this kind of teaching the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. And in place of those things, he tells Timothy, I want you to guard the deposit entrusted to you. God has graciously spoken to his people. He's spoken to us in a way that's been committed to writing for us. And we're not left to guesses. We're not, we're not left to trying to figure this all out on our own. We're not left to asking, what can we stand on that is stable and reliable for us? Because we have it written for us. We have Jesus himself revealed to us in the reliable written word of God. We don't have to guess, but guessing is always a temptation. We might wonder, okay, myths and endless genealogies, what in the world What in the world was that? And Paul doesn't actually tell Timothy what it was. Timothy knows what it is. And we don't necessarily have to know because they're different in every generation. The kinds of things that we try to guess at and that we wish we had sort of the insider knowledge about, if we just knew, then we would be safe. We we are at risk of putting our hope there in every single generation. They had their own then came in the form of myths and endless genealogies. Maybe it was, look, there are so many letters in the name of Abraham, and then there are in the name of Isaac, and then the name of Jacob, and those numbers stand for these things, and hey, you heard it here first. So come with me, and I'll continue to give you the insider knowledge, and you can feel safe. Don't we all want that? Guesses in place of revealed truth. And the problem with the guesses is not that they're based on totally false information. The problem is that they're put in the place where only Jesus himself belongs. 
it, it would be easy for us to take aim at the far ends of the spectrum in our culture, right? Speculations, guesses. We could take aim on the far left at the call to be woke and, and, and to adopt entirely a philosophy that says, look, we've recognized some things that previous generations haven't recognized, and you heard it here first, and so come and follow us. And some of the insights that are expressed in those kinds of communities are true, and some of them are guesses. And we could take aim at the far right and, and at the conspiracy theory community and people saying, look, there's this piece of information, this piece of information, this piece of information, and here's how it all fits together. And there's this giant government conspiracy. And what's wrong with you people that you can't see this? And guess where you heard it first? You heard it here first, people. Follow me and I'll continue to give you the inside track. Some information's true. Some of it's a guess. In both cases, those ones are easy ones to see. There can be harder ones for us to see as well. And so we want to be asking, what is it that I'm relying on uh, to be a healthy Christian? What am I relying on to be a healthy person? Am I fundamentally relying on Jesus himself? Or in some form or another, am I relying on guesses? Am I relying on speculations? And where are those things taking me? I might ask, am, am, am I relying on guesses? And to the degree, we, we do make guesses in life, right? We don't know everything with absolute certainty, so sometimes we have to take educated guesses about practical choices. But one of the questions we can ask about those things, especially as they apply to life in the church, is what do they do? What do they actually result in? Do... Do, do these guesses result in purer hearts? Do they result in a good conscience? Do they result in a sincere faith? Do they actually move us toward Jesus himself? Do they actually make people better? If we tell somebody, look, I have this insight for you, and I want to share it with you, and I really think you ought to listen to me, you might ask the question, does this actually change people to be characterized more by Christ-like love than they were before. Does it make people better, or does it just make them feel like they're better than others? In the end, does it move them toward Jesus himself, or does it do the opposite, as Paul describes in chapter 6, verses 4 and 5? It says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, verse 3, then verse 4, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. These speculations, Paul says, push aside revealed truth Revealed truth about Jesus himself. They push aside revealed truth, or what Paul calls in verse 4, the stewardship from God that is by faith. The stewardship from God that is by faith. We could say God's, way, God's revealed way of doing things. 
What's God's revealed way of doing things? What is it that God has handed over to His people that He wants to see protected? There are some methods for doing church. Paul will give a, a list of qualifications for elders and for deacons, for instance. But what's at the core of the stewardship from God, what God has handed over to His people and said, be about this. Paul says, Paul tells us in Timothy, he, he says in chapter 3, he says, here's the exact reason that I'm writing to you. I want to come to you soon. I'm writing to you for this reason, so that if I delay, chapter 3, verse 15, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. What truth? Truth about how to do things? Secondarily. What truth first and foremost and always? He goes on to it in verse 16 in a poetic way. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Jesus himself in place of rules, in place of speculations, Jesus himself, our hope and our Lord. Rules and speculations threaten to push him aside in every age. So Paul tells Timothy, protect true doctrine. So why? We've already heard part of the answer to that question, but Paul gets explicit about it in verse 5. Here's why. Is it so that people can say the right stuff and as a result prove that they belong? Sometimes that's a real temptation, right? We want to be able to, we want to be able to say the right things in, in LDC. We want to be able to, to, to prove in our conversations with one another that we know the right Christian answers or maybe even the right Christian language. You may have heard the story in Judges of where there's this controversy between people. There's a big fight between uh, two different clans, and uh, one one clan captures what's called the fords of the Jordan, this place where if you want to get from one side of the Jordan to the other, you've got to go across this this spot where you can you can ford it, you can make it across. And they capture the fords of the Jordan, and whenever anybody from the enemy tribe would, would try to go across, they'd give them a test. The Hebrew word for, for, for creek is shibboleth. That's not going to be on the test, but it matters to the story. The Hebrew word is, is Shibboleth. Well, well, people from the enemy tribe, in this case the tribe of Ephraim, uh, evidently had a different, some kind of dialect or maybe some kind of tribal speech impediment, and they couldn't pronounce the word. So when, when they would come to the Shibboleth, uh, the, 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 the people who had captured the fords of the Jordan would say to them, okay, you want to go across? All right, here's your test. Say Shibboleth. And the person would say, Sibboleth, because he couldn't pronounce it right. They couldn't say Shibboleth, they pronounced it Sibboleth, and so they would kill them. And 42,000 people evidently failed the test and, and got killed. Do we try to do that sometimes? We try to do the Shibboleth test. Do you speak the right Christian language? That is not what Paul is about when he tells Timothy to protect true doctrine. It's not about getting people to get the right words, getting people to get the right formula. It is pointing people to the real Jesus himself. That's what he's about. And so he says, 
The aim of the charge is love. Because that's where Jesus gets people. That's what Jesus does inside of people. That's the kind of change that Jesus alone produces in people. True doctrine matters because it tells us how God actually changes people. How God does what man-made rules and speculations can never do. True doctrine matters because it moves us toward Jesus and as a result makes us more like him, centrally characterized by love. And that love grows out of a certain kind of soil. There is, there is a whole person change that Jesus begins to produce in somebody who trusts in him. And Paul describes it in verse 5. It's a change that moves each of us toward Christ-like love. And here's what the soil looks like. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Can my man-made rules produce a pure heart? No. No, they can't. My, my upgraded version of the law can't get us anywhere close. Even God's version of the law didn't produce a pure heart. It only required it. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives him neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Jesus can produce a pure heart in us. Jesus can come alongside us and say, I see in your heart a desire to draw other people after yourself. And in some sense, don't we all? Don't we all want people to, to look at us and say, I heard it there first. That's the kind of person that performs the way I want to perform. I want to be like that. Jesus says, you have something better to offer them. You have me to offer them. And I'm going to teach you to want me for other people. I'm going to make you pure. And a good conscience. You're in process. You look at yourself in your poorly performing moments and think, okay. Who am I to, to, to be a part of what Jesus is doing? And Jesus says, in you, in me, you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You can stand before God and know, I'm okay. And I am going to produce in you the kind of lifestyle that you can actually approve of in greater and greater measure. That you can look back over the course of your life and say, Jesus has taught me to live a kind of life that matches his character that my conscience more and more fully approves of. A pure heart, Jesus can do that. A good conscience, Jesus can do that. And a sincere faith, Jesus can do that. He can say, here I am. Here I am. Fully God, fully man, fully good, crucified, risen, ascended, interceding for you, ruling over you, and coming back again for you. And you can trust me. You can trust me for everything you're not currently trusting me with. That's what makes a real Christian. That's what makes a real Christian life. It's what makes a real church. Law by itself, speculations by themselves, can never produce a pure heart or a good conscience or a sincere faith. Jesus himself can and does. And I see him doing it. I, I, see, I see him doing it here. I see him 
producing love, and I see the expressions of the kind of love that Jesus alone can produce in people that he's making new. It happens as a process, right? It's always got its incompleteness so long as we're on this side of seeing Jesus with our eyes, but it's real. And we see it. And I see it in uh, in some very specific ways. Amy and I were talking about it yesterday. I, I hope that this can be an encouragement to you that Jesus himself is here and working. One of the ways that I see it is is in financial generosity. As, as I've worked with leadership here for the last seven years, uh, the, the one characteristic of the church finances that I can rely on is that it's unpredictable. You never know what things are going to be like. Are we going to be saying, boy, how do we make it through? Or how did we make it through? And, and how are we in such a, a great place? The church finances are unpredictable, and that's part of what points us back to the Lord. You know what's not unpredictable? When there is a personal financial need, we have never had to ask the question, are we really going to be able to help with this? In every single case, the response has been, I would say, immediate and enthusiastic. And people who have been in financial need that we've known about have been able to receive financial help immediately and enthusiastically. Generosity is an expression of the love of Christ. Inclusiveness, I think, is an expression of the love of Christ. You, You are not snobby. And I think that expresses Jesus. That people can show up here and not feel like I have to be one of the cool kids in order to be warmly welcomed. You're inclusive. It's an expression of the love of Christ, a purity of heart that doesn't judge people because you may find them a little different from you or a little different from the way we do things around here. See the love of Christ in steady faithfulness. Some of you have been doing the same ministry job for decades. Some of you have been persevering for months or for years. Some of you for decades in hundreds of different forms. The, 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 the way that I see this expressed in the Bible is when Paul says to the Corinthians, the Corinthians of all people, when Paul says to the Corinthians, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. I think I see you characterized by doing that. And, and I want to bring that full circle to the question of Jesus himself. Because when you're being steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, sometimes we can get lost in the weeds. Paul says, do this knowing, knowing what? Abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that it all depends on you. And if you stop, it's all going to fall like a house of cards. That's not what he says. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that you're always at risk of not doing quite enough and as a result failing and finding that you weren't good enough. That's not what he says. He says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In the Lord you work, you teach Sunday school, you manage the library, you manage a roofing project. You work on ministry boards. You serve the homeless population. You reach out to your neighbors. Who finishes it? 
Who makes it worthwhile? Who makes it not in vain? It is in the Lord, in Jesus himself, that you are persevering, long-term, sometimes feeling small, labor is not in vain. He's the one who's ruling. He's the Savior. He is going to extend that salvation through you, through your work. In Him, your labor is not in vain. Father, I thank You that because of Jesus Himself, grace is a real church. I thank You that this is a church that You have bought with the blood of Your own Son. And so even now on an unusual day, I want to ask that You would continue this good work, that You would continue to bring this true church time and time again to Jesus Himself, that Jesus Himself and His characteristics would be the chief characteristics of grace in increasing measure, day by day, month by month, year by year. Thank You that You haven't left us to ourselves, that Your Spirit does empower us for these things, that He points us to Jesus. We entrust all of this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.